All right, we're back again. You are listening to the Drew Marshall Show. We're streaming live at drewmarshall.ca. What happens when your body doesn't look how it's supposed to look? Why, why are they asking me? I mean, just because they know the answer. Or uh, maybe when it feels how it's not supposed to feel. Or do what it's supposed to do. Again, with the over 50 thing. <laughs> Who or what defines the ideals behind these expectations? How can we challenge them and live more peacefully in our bodies? Shameful Bodies, Religion, and the Culture of Physical Improvement. That's the name of the book. And this book explores these questions by examining how traditional religious narratives and modern philosophical assumptions come together in the construction and pursuit of a better body in contemporary Western societies. Uh, to talk more about it is the author. And the author's last name I still don't know how to pronounce. <laughs> Michelle Mary, Mary Huddy. <laughs> Michelle Huddy. I almost called you Mary now. Michelle, how do you say your last name? I'll, I'll help you out. It's Lowicka. It's, it's actually spelled with L-E-L-W-I-C-A, but you don't have to pronounce the second L, and that makes it just a lot easier. Thank you. Drop the second L, Lewicka. Hello, Hello. Michelle Mary Lewicka. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Um, all right. So, you know, look, first typical sort of inter- interview question on this whole thing is, I, I when I was creeping on you, it looks like you've written a lot about um, sociological implications on the way we view our body, whether it's eating disorders or whatever. Why is this such a hot topic for you? Well, I got interested in the, in the topic, unfortunately, from firsthand experience. Um, yeah, you're right. A lot of my work is focused on body issues, and my first two books focus specifically on women's struggles with food and weight and um, eating disorders. And my own experience as an adolescent was oh, I was just completely obsessed with being thin. Eventually, I developed an eating disorder. I read Seventeen Magazine like a Bible, you know, and just <laughs> desperately, seriously, it really, you know, it really was, I think, my sacred text. And um, spent just enormous amounts of energy feeling horrible about my body, which, you know, looking back, it's just so sad because there was nothing wrong with my body to begin with, of course, as is true for all of us who struggle with body issues, in many ways, um, you know, we're going to war against something that um, we don't need to. But uh, what happened to me is, um, you know, I went to college and started learning some critical thinking, and I realized that the problem wasn't my body. The problem was the way I had been taught to feel about my body and to think about my body. And to, to it, it just, so I had so bought I guess, our culture's indoctrination that, um, you know, you can never be perfect enough as a a woman, and perfection is expressed through your body. And so I got interested in the topic of body shame through my own body experience of body shame. And then fast forward, I'm in my 40s, mid-40s, and I um, started having really severe, long since, you know, I'd long since made peace with the whole eating disorder part, right? I'm, I'm cool with my body. I love my body. I enjoy my body. Hmm. And I'm in my 40s, and I start having incredible pain in my hip. And, um, and I, would, I would be, I'm a jogger, or I used to be, and it was very therapeutic for me, but it, the pain was never going away. And so I started kind of really having this antagonistic relationship with my body again, which is similar to what I had as a teenager, and I was like, man, this just sucks. Now I feel like I'm really want to escape my body. And it was 
for different reasons. I was no longer wanting to escape it because I couldn't control it because it always wanted to eat. Now I wanted to escape it because it was always in pain. And finally, I went to the orthopedic doctor. And long story short, I had extremely severe osteoarthritis, which was bizarre for somebody in her late 40s because I'd never had a major injury. But anyway, ended up um, being told that the only way to you know, be fixed was to have surgery, a total hip replacement surgery. And at the time I was 47 and I spent a few more years living with that chronic pain until finally I just decided I can't do this anymore and I had surgery. And But what I learned through that experience was just how difficult it is to live with a body that's not doing what you want it to do. Or, you know, when I was younger, it was it wasn't looking how I wanted it to look. And, um, you know, in my late 40s, it was it's not feeling how I want it to feel. And I developed a limp and people always commented on my limp. And I felt really ashamed about that. And I, I kind of realized that this experience of body shame that so many of us have comes from that experience of our bodies not cooperating with how we think they're supposed to perform or how we think they're supposed to look. And the more I studied it, the more I just realized this is such a widespread thing. It's not just me. Okay. Which religion is the worstest? That's a real word, by the way. (laughs) When it comes, when it comes to body shaming, what do you think? You know, honestly, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I, you know, I know some about, a lot of religions, and I know the most about Christianity, and I'm only really comfortable speaking about that tradition because, in part, because I find it unappealing to critique other people's traditions. Nice. And and I'm glad you said um, it like that because this is. I got asked recently, why do you always pick on, on Christians? Why don't you pick on other people more? Well, because it's the one I know the most. I've been part of the tribe right. for 30 years. I feel a little more educated in that way, and I don't feel comfortable, you know, making fun of things I don't know about or I'm not part of. So I get it. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly my answer. You know, it's the tradition I come from. It's the one I know the most, both through my own experience and through my studies. I haven't, you know, I've actually um, had some forays into studying Buddhism, and they they have some not-so-great things to say about um, embodiment in some of the traditional scriptures, but but nowadays, the way most Westerners absorb Buddhism, it's very body-friendly. There are tra- there are traditions within the Christian tradition that are extremely body friendly. If we think about you know the whole idea of the body as a temple and honor your body, and what did Jesus do? He walked around feeding people and healing people, and he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. You know, so clearly he had you know which would have been typical for Jews of the time a very earthy, healthy, um, non dualistic relationship with his body. So um, Christianity has those traditions, and for goodness sakes, it's the tradition of the Incarnation, where, you know, the Christians actually believe that, however they configure this, the divine became human flesh. That's very body positive. Sure. But the traditional narratives that have gotten the most airplay and have been reproduced, and I would say are invisibly still operating in popular commercial culture— and even in medical culture to a certain extent, are those more moralizing narratives that tell us that, you know, you have to be able to control your body and its desires and all of those urges are not okay. Hmm. So those are the narratives that have gotten the most play and unfortunately I think done some damage to us, um, whether what, or not we're even religious. Right? Sure, sure. Uh, what, what role, though, I mean, we're talking about the role that religion plays in, in a lot of body-shaming stuff, 
But yep. we're also in this day and age where the politically correct nonsense has gone through the roof. And uh-huh. and so, you know, uh, we're not allowed to say the F word, fat. You know, we're not allowed to say yeah. old. We yeah. have to be right. age challenged or something. I don't know, whatever. <laughs> um, okay, so this is really interesting. One of the things I learned in my research, and I had written two books already about, you know, um, eating disorders and body problems. But in this in my last book, The Shameful Body Book, I learned that there are a number of fat activists, fat scholars, fat people who are reclaiming that word. Okay. And in a positive way and saying, hey, look, there's nothing negative about that word unless you put it there. Exactly. It's just a descriptive, it's a descriptive word. Yeah, okay, so I, got, I, can... I have to share this with you. Okay. This is just right. dopey moment, Drew, number 734, but... Um, I walked into the kitchen of a of a camp one day, and and uh, they were all doing stuff. It was a giant kitchen and everything. And I there, there was a kind of a small gap, and I walked through it, and I thought, "What? This is ridiculous. Why is this gap so small?" And I didn't say anything, but I intentionally uh-huh. slammed into one side of it, and all the knives and utensils fell on the floor, and I made a big production uh-huh. out of it. And I said, "What is the go with this little tiny gap here?" It's like, I said, "And it's like you don't. It's like you don't want fat chicks working in the kitchen." Now, mm. as a six foot four, you know, not overly overweight guy, first of all, I'm mm-hmm. a man. Second of all, I'm not overweight. Mm-hmm. I probably shouldn't mm-hmm. have said that. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you agree yeah. with me in that? That you probably shouldn't have said that? Yes. Well, you know, I think I think what I would say is that we all need to take a chill pill and start appreciating body diversity so we don't have to apologize for whatever size we are whether you are a tall not overweight guy or whether you are a curvaceous woman who has been taught not to love her curves because you know one size fits all in our culture so i think the idea that i'm moving toward in the book is hey let's face it bodies are diverse now i'm also a champion of trying to live responsibly in the body so i'm not saying you know, eat whatever you want and never exercise. I'm simply saying we need to start from a place of body acceptance. Right, right. And not and not shaming each other and not, you know, avoiding, um, you know, what, what you're, you're kind of suggesting. There's this almost avoidance um, of, you know, talking about fat people as fat or talking about old people as old. Yeah. And we all, we all do that, and then we do it to ourselves, too. You know, so we... we <clears throat> We internalize that yep. shame. Okay, so there's all these shames. We're talking about almost part two of your book here. We'll talk about part one in a second, but part two, two of okay. your book talks about disability shame, fat shame, the shame of chronic pain and illness, and the shame of getting old. Let's just talk yep. about the shame of getting old for a second. I have okay. yet to meet an old person who is offended when someone calls them old. And and you know, and where does uh-huh. where does... See, I think that from a religious point of view, that actually gives, at least from, again, the, the, the sacred scriptures of, of Christianity, the, mm-hmm. they, they give, they pay homage to the old. They, they do. It says, well, it, you know, something about your elders and the wisdom of the older people and, you know, that kind of thing. Well, it even says in the Hebrew scriptures that the, your gray hair is a crown of glory. How about no hair? Beautiful. Is that okay? Is no hair okay? <laughs> I, think I would imagine there were Hebrews, ancient Hebrews that had no hair. You know, there's the, the, the Bible says beautiful things about old people, and I would say especially old men. 
Um, it associates authority with old men. In a few cases in the New Testament, um, there are some references to elderly women who have some authority, but mostly it's when you're older as a male that you gain authority. And the Bible also sees old age as a, a kind of social justice issue that we need to take care of the elderly. Hmm. We need to um, learn from them. So the Bible has a lot of positive things to say. In the Christian tradition, one of the narratives that developed that is not so age-friendly is the narrative of the resurrection and the spiritual body you'll receive in the resurrection. And the narrative, and this comes out of Augustine, the narrative is that everybody will be resurrected at the age of 30. That was a definitive age they came up with? Well, that was what Augustine said, and yeah. he was really one of the one of the biggest hitters. If you know anything about Christian history, Augustine's one of the biggest hitters in Christian history. Yeah. And um, you know, he says everybody be thirty, which is the perfect age because it was the age of Christ. And um, so, in that, there's this kind of normalizing narrative, you know, that suggests that there is a kind of perfect ideal to which we should all strive. And when when we're striving for improvement. The, there's always some kind of ideal in the back of our mind, right? What are we improving ourselves towards, whether we're losing, trying to lose weight or trying to, um, you know, get look younger. Um, and the ideal in the ancient, you know, uh, resurrection theories was 30. So I was, and I'm also kind of curious that you don't meet a lot of people who are, um, feel, feel or express a sense of shame about aging. I think a lot of it is indigenous to women, Women my age, so I'm entering my mid-50s now, right. um, it may not be conscious or may not consciously express um, body shame around aging, but the vast majority I know color their hair, you know, and I'm not yep. critiquing that, but it is interesting because why? What's the assumption there? And the assumption is that gray hair is less attractive, and most I know cover their wrinkles, too, in some way or another. And Why? <laughs> The assumption is that wrinkles are less attractive. So the assumption is that there's something wrong with the body the way it naturally ages. And I'm again, I'm not critiquing that a woman might color her hair or wear makeup to color, cover her wrinkles, but I'm kind of curious. I want to talk about it. Like, well, why are we doing that? Right. So what's interesting is, from my perspective anyway, well, it's not really interesting because it's interesting because it's my perspective, but um, I, <laughs> the, the the gray hair and the wrinkles, dude, I dig that. I hugely uh, yeah. let's Let's go the opposite, yeah. right? When I see, like I was hanging out with Suzanne Summers backstage at one of her shows. She was a guest on my show. Yeah. And Suzanne is stretched and pulled and puffy. And, and uh, I just yeah. it was like, give me, where's Chrissy Snow? I want, because even Chrissy Snow on Three's Company had wrinkles. She had smile lines, yeah. but not Suzanne yeah. Summers now. I think yeah. she. I think she That's... used the thigh master on her face. You know? Right, right. <laughs> I think she's also like promoting, um, you know, promoting a kind of youthful ideal for women yes. that for most women is just not possible. And really, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. So we're kind of you know preaching to each other here. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I don't know why women think it's more attractive to look younger. And in some ways, it's a kind of impersonating youth. And I'd rather claim the wisdom. I mean, I feel yep. like I've earned my gray hairs and wrinkles. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious about trying to be okay with that. But if you open a women's magazine, boy, you better be sure that you're ready to hear about how this cream can, you know, make you whole mm-hmm. by getting rid of your wrinkles. I mean, that that's the underlying message that we're sold. It's a kind of salvation myth yeah. that you will be happy. 
you will feel whole and you will feel confidence and power that maybe you don't feel in other areas of your life if you look better. Really well said. Michelle Mary Lewicka. Lewicka? Lewicka? Lewicka. There it is. Lewicka. Got Mm -hmm. it. Wow. I'm just not uh, doing good. (laughs) Uh, Michelle Mary Lewicka. She is the author of Shameful Bodies, Religion and the Culture of Physical Improvement, drawing on examples from popular culture such as self-help books, magazines, and advertisements. Uh, Michelle shows how these narratives and assumptions encourage us to go... Uh, to war against our bodies, to fight fat, triumph over disability, conquer chronic pain and illness, and defy aging. Now I want to jump into the prosperity doctrine out there. Okay. Uh, you know, which in, in, somehow they've interpreted scriptures, New Testament, and I'm not sure whether it was Paul or Jesus they were listening to. I personally don't think it was either. But they were, that were saying, well, you know, we, we, should, we shouldn't be getting saved. If we're really serving the Lord, you know, and he's our, he's our boss, he's our master, he's our papa, then, then God will protect us from X, Y, and Z, and we shouldn't get sick, and we shouldn't have pain, and we shouldn't have illness, which yeah. is just theological BS. Yeah, yeah. You're so right. And there's that, the version of that for the body is, you know, if you're doing everything right, if you're exercising right and eating right, and, you know, maybe even saying your prayers at night, nothing bad will happen to your body. And you know what? The body has an intelligence and the body has a kind of life of its own that does, it doesn't always um, follow the rules that our culture has set. And, you know, what happens when somebody gets cancer? Does that mean they didn't have enough spiritual um, goodness in them? They didn't have enough trust in God? They did something wrong? There's a very punishing narrative in that assumption, right? Yeah. That, um, and, and then we also, in what you're saying, which is really a key idea in the book, uh, we also have bought into the idea that we are in control of our bodies. And that if we just do everything right, we can control them. And that is playing God. We, we certainly have influence over our bodies. Again, I'm not advocating that we don't try and, you know, do our best to be healthy within reason. Um, we have influence. But to, but to say we have control is to usurp something that is beyond us. Yeah. And it's, a, the, you know, the power of life that is, it's not all in our hands. It's not all in our decision-making. That's one of the biggest, when I talk about the philosophical ideas that are embedded in, in this kind of um, culture of physical improvement, it's that, uh, I don't know if your readers are, or if your listeners are familiar with Descartes, that I think mm-hmm. therefore I am guy. You know, basically he's saying that our mind can control what happens to your body, mind over matter. Yeah. Well, that, we, that is one of the <clears throat> most unfortunate things we do to ourselves, is we shame ourselves because we think we're supposed to be in control. Uh, the mind over matter thing didn't work real well with Tony Robbins' gang a uh, f- number of months ago when 40 of them were taken to hospital uh, during the fire walk. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently somebody was like doing selfies while they were walking on the, and it was like, well, okay, if you're going to take selfies while you're doing a fire walk, you deserve to get burned. But everyone else, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think it works well for most of us. No. You know, <laughs> no. it puts us at war. It just, it puts us in perpetual war with our bodies. What if we actually, you know, it, I, I love this idea that, um, you know, one of Jesus's best teachings is the love your enemy teaching. I really find that to be challenging and beautiful and uh, uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people today, 
and a lot of women in particular, the enemy is not some person in some foreign land. The enemy is their body on a daily basis. This is what they're struggling with. And so if they're going to be serious about putting that teaching into practice, love love your enemy. It's got to start with love your body. Well said. Really well said. Michelle Mary Lewicka is professor of religion at Concordia College in U.S., the United States of America, for those of you Canadians that don't know where that is. It's the guy with the it's the guy with the hair that's running in it. Uh, she is the author of the Religion of Thinness and uh, Starving for Salvation, and of course this book now, Shameful Bodies: Religion and the Culture of Physical Improvement. Uh, final question for you, Michelle, has to do with mm-hmm. the, our body is a temple. Yeah. Um, I guess it's like everything else. Every scripture verse can be taken to extremes, and mm. next thing you know, you're a slave to your body. And there, so you yeah. got the one verse that says, hey, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God resides in your body, so take good care of it. And so people go crazy on that. And then the other yeah. one uh, that where it said, don't be a slave to anything. Be not a slave to anything. So why would you be a slave to your body, too? Now, there's the other verse that says, beat your body into submission. Help me. Right. Right. No, that's that's a great question. So it's so easy for our effort to be healthy to slip into the territory of unhealthy. I mean, to slip into, to put it in religious terms, a kind of idolatry. Mm-hmm. So you can treat your body as a temple, but at some point, if you are going crazy about it and trying to play God, really, you are all of a sudden engaging in a kind of idolatry. Your body's a mystery, you know, and to treat it as a temple is to not be in control and in charge and, um, you know, getting as much out of it as you can, is to respect that mystery and to, to spend time with it, to listen to it, um, and to realize that um, the peace, I think, that we all want with our body isn't the product of being able to control it. It's the product of practicing, and I really would emphasize practicing, because I think, you know, we're all on a journey somewhere, you know, with this. Nobody's doing it perfectly. We're all on a journey. But to practice, trying to be present in the bodies we have, trying to be grateful for the bodies we have, even even when those bodies are not doing what we want them to do, they are a gift. And to um, treat that gift not with the kind of harshness and not with the kind of idolatrous obsession. Whenever we're moving into obsessive thinking, I really do think the religious language for that is it's idolatrous. And I think the more we engage in it, the more we have this kind of habit energy of doing it. You know, so so it does take some spiritual discipline. I'd say I'd even say it's a spiritual practice to stop and um, be present in the bodies we have, be grateful. And I'd also add that it's a spiritual practice to be critical of the cultural messages that we're constantly being encouraged to take in that we're not okay. Wow. To make cultural criticism a spiritual practice, I think, is crucial. A form of prayer. You know, what is that advertisement trying to sell me? And what what lie is it trying to sell me, for example? That's a spiritual practice. Oh, this was good. Michelle Mary Lewicka, she's the author of Shameful Bodies, Religion and the Culture of Physical Improvement. What a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you well, so much, thank Michelle. Thank you. What a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you, Drew. Bye-bye. Bye. Ah, uh, there you go, folks. Uh, I don't know why I'm sounding Irish. Oh, there you go, folks. All right, Michelle Mary Lewicka, again, the author of Shameful Bodies, Religion and the Culture of Physical Improvement. You may want to grab that book and have a read. So stay with us. Lots more coming up. You're listening to The Drew Marshall Show. We're streaming live at drewmarshall.ca, and we'll be right back. 